When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madden, to the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah, south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel, slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon, to Mizrephoth, Maim, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east, until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. At that time, Joshua turned back the captured, sorry, and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it was put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed, and he burned up Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds, except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the west foothills, the Arabah and the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, 
from all the hill country of Judea and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. Well, let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, thanks so much for drawing us together and... Um, we pray that as we gather here and as the children gather uh, next door that you would, by your spirit, be uh, helping us to understand your word better, that uh, we would be people who live lives that uh, are worthy of you. And we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. been great watching the Olympic Games on TV and uh, the Olympic Games are um, really about celebrating human achievement aren't they? The, uh, the discipline, the fitness, the skill and uh, especially when it all culminates on the dais. Uh, we love it don't we? Especially when the flag that's flying highest has got the Southern Cross on it and I'm not talking about New Zealand there, am I? And uh, when the anthem that's being played is our Australian anthem, well, we just revel in all the glory. Haven't heard it all that much this time, though, have we? Not as much as usual. But sometimes the high point of a gold medal, a gold medal win, actually happens before the presentation. In the lead-up to the Olympics the Fijian Rugby Sevens team uh, really struggled in certain ways. Uh, their team uh, didn't have enough money to pay for petrol for the team bus. The team didn't have enough money to pay for water to be served out at their, um, at their training sessions. And some of the team had actually been homeless since the cyclone hit Fiji in, uh, in February. And so thumping Great Britain for the gold medal, well, you've got to say that that gives every reason to, uh, to glorify them for their great achievement. And yet uh, that's not necessarily the way that they saw it. Um, because uh, what was it they did when they won the match? Well, you know, don't you, those of you who've been watching TV, big, strong men before the eyes of the world, huddled together in the middle of the, uh, uh, of the oval. They, uh, they sang a hymn in order to give glory and praise and honour, not to themselves, but to God. And they're not the only ones. It's been a little bit noticeable for me, this Olympics, that there have been many other gold medalists who've not hesitated to publicly thank God 
for the gift that he's given them and for the opportunity that he's given them and not seemingly just doing so in a trite manner or even a cultural manner but really seems to come from the heart. They do the hard work, that's for sure, but they recognise that it's actually God who's in control. And that's a great example because it's great when we see the great ones uh, behaving like that because our tendency in life tends to be to, um, to trust in our own abilities and to trust in our own resources uh, and to glorify ourselves rather than to trust in God and to give glory to him. Now, as I mentioned, today we wrap, at, wrap, at, we wrap up our, our sermon series on the book of Joshua, which we'll come back to later. But uh, as we looked at Joshua chapters 1 to 10, uh, what have been the big things that we've learnt? Well, I take it that um, one of the big things which we've learnt is that uh, God is powerful, that God can be trusted, and so therefore that the glory goes to God. That's the big story that we've learnt so far. That we don't glorify ourselves, we don't glorify human strength. Now you might remember from uh, last week, if you are with us last Sunday, when we finished off chapter 10, that Israel's army had just returned to camp after gaining total victory uh, in all of the, uh, the cities that they went to in the southern part of Canaan. But uh, that's not even half the job completed because, well, what about the north? And there's a, a map of, uh, of Canaan for you. And where they had conquered in chapter 10 uh, from, uh, from Gibeon, Jerusalem was that area there, but there's a lot more of Canaan because how about all of this region up here? Uh, there's a lot more work to be done. There was a city called Hazor. Now, Hazor is above the Sea of Galilee, somewhere around there, and it was the largest and the strongest city in the region at that time. It was uh, strategically important because it was located on a trade route between uh, Egypt and Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia being essentially what we'd call modern-day Iraq and Iran. Now, when the king of Hazor, and his name was Jabin, uh, in chapter 11, verse 1, when the king of Hazor heard of the great victories that had taken place uh, in the south, he understood the threat. And so, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 11, if you'd like to have that open, uh, what he did was he formed a coalition, a coalition of a, of a great number of kings and kings of many races. Uh, there were Canaanites, there were Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites and Hivites. 
And uh, these are uh, not just names that you hope you don't have to read if you're asked to do the Bible reading in church on a Sunday. Uh, they're not just difficult to pronounce names. The bottom line is here, and I think that this is the author's intention in verses 1 to 5, is to uh, describe for us uh, and for us to feel the weight of this, that this is an overwhelming force which has been joined together. Have a look in verse 4. In verse 4, he says, They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, Israel's army only had foot soldiers, but uh, this army was different to that because they had horses and chariots. Now, I understand that it's a new Ben-Hur movie that's just been released this week. Has anyone seen it? Not on in Port Macquarie as yet? You might want to go and have a watch of it now. Ben-Hur is the, uh, the latest uh, movie of Ben-Hur is now showing. I read it in the paper this morning. And when we think of Ben-Hur, what do you think of? You think of that chariot race, don't you? the horses and the chariots and the gladiators and, and so on. And it all looks very ancient to us. But uh, the reality is that uh, in Joshua's day, that this was cutting-edge military hardware. This was the, uh, the best technology available. Uh, horses and chariots, these were the tanks of the ancient world. And this army that has been amassed has got plenty of them. How many soldiers did they have? Well, what does it say? As many as the sand on the seashore. And you can just envisage that, can't you? A huge number of uh, these ancient soldiers and these uh, horses and, and chariots. And without God, if you took God out of the picture you'd have to say that the odds are now clearly stacked against Israel. This is massive human strength. And yet God made a promise to Joshua. And we see the promise, he said, don't be afraid, Joshua, because within 24 hours, I'm going to hand all of them over to you, slain. Now, um, Joshua didn't sit around waiting for them to come and attack him. Uh, what did he do? He moved his forces and he did a surprise attack against them. And he surprised the enemy at a place which is called the Waters of Merom. Now, uh, it's around that area there and this is not a topographical map. If it was a topographical map, you would see that this area to the west of the Sea of Galilee is very hilly, almost mountainous territory. And uh, that's important because of the fact that uh, Joshua chose that point to be the place where he launched his surprise attack. And uh, it's 1,200 metres above sea level. The, uh, the waters of Merom. How useful do you think chariots are 
uh, in hill country like that. Not particularly useful. In fact, they're useless. Uh, and so that may have contributed to what happens next. We're only told three things about this battle. We don't know uh, about any miracles that took place, and such as the sun and the moon standing still, like we learnt last week. But uh, it tells us we're told three things about this battle. First of all, it didn't end very well for the northern kings, and Joshua's army took no prisoners, if you get what I'm saying. Right? Secondly, they set, the they set fire to the city of Hazor and they burnt it to the ground. Um, interestingly, I understand that uh, Hazor was built on a hill, as a lot of cities were, and I understand that the archaeologists who've dug that hill and they've come to the layer in that, that hill which equates to the approximate time of uh, Joshua, uh, and what they found is that there was a big fire that took place at that particular time. That's just by the way. And the third thing in verse 9 is that they, just, they didn't just burn the city, they hamstrung the horses, which means that they, uh, they slit the tendon uh, on the back of the leg just behind where the knee is, on the, on the back leg, and uh, that obviously cripples the horse and the horse won't survive that. And then they set fire to all of the chariots. And you wonder why, why would they do that? I mean, there's still plenty of more battles to, for Israel to fight. And uh, if an army these days captured a missile launcher from the enemy, do you reckon they'd uh, destroy it? I reckon they'd keep it, don't you? And they'd use it. And surely Israel's army, if they, if they took the horses and the chariots, they'd be equipped with uh, this latest military hardware and they would be an even greater force to be reckoned with. But they hamstrung the horses and they burnt the chariots. Because in verse 6, that is exactly what God had commanded them to do. Why would they do that? There's a great line in Psalm 20, I think it's in verse 7, and it says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Uh, if Joshua had equipped his army with these ancient tanks, uh, what would that have done to their trust? And in victory, who would be getting the glory? You can see the temptation, can't you? That they'd start to think how mighty and how great they are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about how it is that God, uh, God uses weakness in order to defeat strength. And he uses weak people such as us, people who are frail, people who are not particularly special in any way, to, uh, to share the gospel, to tell other people about Jesus, all kinds of people, 
from the, uh, the lowly people to the high and the mighty people, uh, people such as us can speak to a rich, famous, powerful person and if, if we ever meet such people, we could share the gospel with them and you know what can sometimes happen? They actually listen, they believe, their, their, minds, their hearts are changed, their minds are changed and their lives are changed forever. And we think to, you, to ourselves, my goodness, they listen to me? <laughs> my words change them? Who do we give the glory to? Only to God. Because we know that it is him who has done that work, not us. Satan loses because people get saved through the sharing of the gospel, through weak vessels such as us. And so we obey God and we simply trust him to do his work. And that's exactly what Joshua did in verse 15. In verse 15, as the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. And so we can see there the transition of leadership from Moses to Joshua. But we can see how Joshua was obedient as Moses was, obedient to what God had commanded. And what that obedience means is that after Joshua destroyed the city of Hazor, that he didn't stop there, that his military campaign continued, so that uh, in verses 12 through to 15, Israel conquered the, uh, all of the cities of northern Canaan. Uh, but in all of Canaan, north and south, there were only three cities which they burnt. And that was uh, Jericho, Ai, and now Hazor. Uh, burning chariots was the right thing to do. But uh, burning houses, well, those houses were going to become their homes. Um, come with me over to uh, chapter 24 for a moment. In chapter 24, verse 13, when it was all uh, said and done, uh, this is what God said to Israel. In verse 13, he said, So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. So the infrastructure was left in place so that eventually Israel could live there. They kept the cities intact, but not the inhabitants. They killed the inhabitants. And this is uh, that tough issue that we looked at last week. Uh, in fact, um, verses 16 through to 20 give us a summary of the whole conquest of chapters 10 and 11, the victories in the north and also in the south. Let me read verse 16. 
So Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah and the mountains of Israel with their foothills. From Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. Now, there are a whole stack of names that, again, you probably don't want to have to read if you're asked to read in church. But uh, essentially what it's saying there is that uh, Joshua, in terms of the area that Joshua went to and attempted to take, that he, con- he conquered the whole lot, uh, north, south, east, and west, although not uh, necessarily the coastal strip at this point in time. Well, what this means is that Canaan, the promised land, now belongs to these descendants of Abraham, as God had promised. And it's not like they've just taken over the people, because except for the Gibeonites, they've killed them. Verses 19 and 20 are very confronting. Verse 19, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle for it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might totally destroy them exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. That is confronting, isn't it? Exterminating them without mercy. Now, um, what, what has happened here is, is all of God's work. Uh, it's not just the victories, but it's, it's the wars themselves are God's will. Uh, they are God's work. Um, in chapter 10, the king of Jerusalem, he rounded up all of his allies. And here in chapter 11, the king of, of uh, Hazor, he rounded up all of his allies into a, an overwhelming force. You've got to remember, these guys, they knew how strong Israel's God is. Um, everybody uh, we knew... Uh, we, we know this from what Rahab had told the two spies had entered. Uh, everybody in that land had known what uh, Israel's God had done to the Egyptian army when he parted the Red Sea and swallowed up an entire army, chariots and horses. Everyone knew that. And uh, Rahab had said that the Canaanite hearts had melted in fear at the uh, possibility of Israel's arrival. They also knew how God had stopped the Jordan River. Incredible miracle in a flood season that the waters all piled up in a massive wall. They knew that. They knew how the, the wall of Jer- walls of Jericho had just come tumbling down, miraculously so. Uh, They knew all of these things, not to mention that the northern kings knew of what happened in the south uh, in terms of the sun and the moon standing still. That's not something that you're going to miss. 
as well as a massive hailstorm which wiped out most of the southern armies. They knew these things. Now, my guess is that if you were one of the northern kings, you might be thinking to yourself, I think that's overwhelming force. You might be thinking to yourself, I wonder if the Gibeonites had the right idea after all. Maybe we should try to get a peace treaty happening as well. You might think that. But in verse 20, it was God who had hardened their hearts. It was God who actually put them in the situation where they would not do that. And the reason is that their sin and their idolatry was so great that the day of grace was now over. This was God's punishment. And God would allow for God's people to make a fresh start in a land free from idolatry so that they could be God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Now, chapter 12, if you have a brief look at that, uh, chapter 12 lists the places and all of the kings that uh, were conquered. And I guess you're grateful that you don't have to read that um, in church. This just long list of kings, not just the kings that are listed in chapter 11 and 10, but others as well that got themselves all caught up in, this, um, in, in the battles. And then from chapter 13 onwards, it speaks of how the land was settled and the allotment given to every tribe. But there's one issue which has not as yet been dealt with, and it's this. Forty years earlier, Moses had, spent, had sent 12 spies from Kadesh Barnea into the land in order to check it out and come back and report so that uh, Israel could plan its invasion. And when they came back, they were scared stiff, weren't they? And when they reported to people what they saw, uh, most of the nation was scared stiff. Do you remember why? It was the size of the people, wasn't it? Um, in Numbers chapter 13, in verse 33, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the spies concluded by saying, we cannot go there because we simply won't win. Uh, the people there are bigger than us. We even saw the Nephilim. Now, that may not mean much to us, but for Israelites, they'd be trembling in their boots. We even saw the Nephilim. And uh, in Numbers 13, it says that the Nephilim, about the Nephilim, it says that the descendants of Anak, being the Anakim, the Anakim come from the Nephilim. And upon that news, the people simply refused to enter. 
and it cost them 40 years of wandering around in the desert. So who are the Nephilim? Now, to be honest, the Bible doesn't tell us a great deal about the, the, the Nephilim. And what it does tell us is somewhat mysterious, but we're going to look at it anyway. So can I get you to go to Genesis chapter 6 for a moment? Way back to the time of the flood. In Genesis chapter 6, I'm going to read from verses 1 to verse 4. Verse 1 reads, When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, which I take to mean before the flood, and also afterward, perhaps after the flood, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Nephilim. It's one of, I think, four or five references in the Bible um, that speaks of the Nephilim, and it begins there. Told you they were mysterious. Um, now, people have different thoughts about what it means by, in verse 2, by the sons of God. Uh, there's a general consensus that the, the Nephilim are the same as the sons of, in, in verse 4, are the same as the sons of God referred to in verse 2. And uh, some people say, well, the sons of God, that could mean kings, because sometimes kings are referred to in that way in the Bible. Uh, some say that they could be, uh, could be godly men. A bunch of godly men married these, these women. Um, but then it's a little bit difficult to get around the most obvious interpretation, and that is that uh, they were human-like spiritual beings who married women, produced strong sons, so large sons, who were great warriors, men of renown. And it seems that somehow this, this also happened after the flood uh, through a, a man named Anak, whose descendants lived in Canaan. Now, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us a great deal more about it than that, which means that to be overly speculative may be unhelpful. The Bible teaches us what we do need to know. And what we do know is that um, this is why the Israelites were too frightened to enter Canaan. We even saw the Nephilim there. Now, do you reckon that was wrong? Was it wrong for the Israelites to say, oh, 
okay, we're not going in. I mean, can you blame them for that? Well, yes, you can. Uh, And yes, it is wrong because in all of creation, there is simply no one or no thing which is greater than the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel. Uh, In Joshua 11, how is it that the author wraps up his summary of Joshua's conquest of the land? Well, have a look in verse 21. Let's read it. Verse 21. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites, the descendants of Anak, who comes from the Nephilim. He destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israel, Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath and Ashdod did any survive. Uh, those three cities were on the coast. Uh, Joshua didn't go there and they eventually became Philistine territory actually. When you look at that though, it's actually a great way of... Um, concluding the, uh, uh, the account of the uh, conquest of the land. Because the earlier generation, they, they didn't trust in God. The earlier generation, they trusted in themselves. And because they were trusting in themselves and then they heard about the Nephilim in the land, they said, no way, we can't win. We're not going to enter. We're not going there. Now, God had told Joshua to be strong and courageous. And having courage, as I said a few weeks ago, that's not about being reckless. Having courage means uh, facing our fears, uh, facing our foe and stepping forward anyway because it's the right thing to do, because we don't trust in horses and chariots. We don't trust in human strength. As Christians uh, in this life, we face challenges all the time. Live long enough and you'll face challenges. Sickness, um, broken relationships, financial hardships, even persecution, uh, challenges which can tempt us to, uh, to withdraw Christianly, to step backwards in terms of our obedience to God. But despite these temptations, despite these challenges, We can stand firm as Christians because of the reality that our greatest battle has already been won. Now, um, plenty of Olympians uh, have expressed their faith in Christ and 
not just the unsuccessful ones either. Uh, uh, think about um, Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps. Uh, some of the fastest men alive have been giving glory to God, have they not? But the interview which uh, struck me most was one that actually happened before the Olympics. It was um, two American uh, synchros, 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 yeah, you, you know, you get what I mean. Um, synch synchronised divers, okay, synch synchronised diving team, two guys, and they've, they've just climbed out of the pool having done the dive that's got them into the American team and they knew it. And the reporter comes up with a camera and the microphone and starts asking them how they feel. And one of the guys says, well, you know, I feel great. <laughs> He feels terrific. He, he says, I, I'm, a, I'm an Olympian. But he says, you know what, all these twists and flops and splashes that I do in the cool, that, that's, that's not where my identity is for the rest of my life. My identity is in Christ Jesus. That's what he said. And they turn over to his teammate and she says, ask him a question. And he says, you know, how do you feel? And he says, look, we're just so thankful there are so many sacrifices which have been made by our coaches, my wife, our families, so many. But nothing compares to the sacrifice we've had in eternity. Indeed, how about that? The cross of Jesus looks very weak. A, a, an arrested criminal, battered, beaten, bloodied, bruised, carrying a cross on his back, being spat on, being derided, hanging from a cross as a common criminal, looks weak. Like Joshua's army, facing a countless multitude with their horses and their chariots, looked weak. And yet by paying for our sin, the greatest victory has been won for us. The sacrifice that we enjoy into all of eternity In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? There is nothing. There is nothing in all of creation. There is nothing which can separate us from the love of God. Nothing in life that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing in death that can separate us from the love of God. Not even angels or demons, says Paul, not even the Nephilim could do that. Because we are more than conquerors. Not because we are great, but through him who loved us. And to him be all glory. Let's pray.
Gracious Father, we thank you that in weakness that there is strength because you are our God. We thank you, Father God, for the great victory won by Christ Jesus on the cross that uh, just as Israel could enter into her rest and indeed the land rested, that because of the great victory of Jesus that we can enter into our eternal rest with you forever. We thank you, Father God, and we pray that you would give us uh, boldness and courage as we face the challenges of our days and the challenges that are ahead, knowing that, uh, that you're with us, that no one can defeat what you have already done for us in Jesus. So help us to stay firm, help us to be faithful, and uh, we pray that you'd even be pleased to use weak fallible vessels like ourselves to help others to get to know uh, the one who's loved us and died for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.